of grace, and um, I'm going to continue speaking about grace today. As I've said before, one of the reasons why I started thinking about this is because I heard a message from a pastor in another congregation in which he suggested that because of God's grace, it was no longer necessary to ask for forgiveness or repent of anything because when Yeshua died on that cross, we were forgiven yesterday, today, and forever. Now, besides the fact that that's a misuse of that Scripture, because what that Scripture is also talking is, is really talking about is that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Um, it's just a, a really unbiblical idea that we don't need to ask for forgiveness. So for the last two weeks, in preparation for this message today, we have spoken about what grace is and what grace is not. What it requires, what it does not require, what it accomplishes. And so let's talk about that just as a summary. First of all, grace is not never needing to repent. So grace does not mean, when we hear God's grace, it doesn't mean, therefore, that we never need to repent. I'll tell you, if a husband transgresses against his wife by being selfish and demanding in a way that he absolutely should not be, then uh, don't you think that the wife has a right to expect that the husband is going to turn to her and say, Honey, I'm sorry, I really blew it. Of course and vice versa, if it goes the other way around, if the woman of the house has been particularly um, uh, demanding, unfair, um, maybe she needs to repent at that time. It happens. The idea that we don't need to repent once we have come to salvation is, uh, well, I called it something from the pit of hell um, the other evening, and I, I really believe that. Also, grace is not never needing to ask for forgiveness. Repentance and forgiveness are not necessarily the same thing. They go hand in hand. Repentance is when you're going one way, the wrong way, and you turn away from it and you pursue the right way. Asking for forgiveness is just that. You ask for forgiveness. Grace is not a statement that we no longer sin. Just because God has poured His grace out on us, just because God has forgiven us of our sins, just because Yeshua hung on the execution stake so that, so that, we could become followers of God. Now you notice the way I put that. I did not put it so that we could be saved. Being saved is not the chief focus of this. It's not. What Yeshua did on that execution stake was not primarily so that we could be saved. I don't want you to be shocked, but that is not the chief focus. 
the chief reason that Yeshua hung on that execution stake was for the redemption of creation and so that we could become a useful part of God's plan to accomplish that redemption. And by the way, a happy byproduct of all that is that we're saved. Brothers and sisters, hear me well. Our focus should never be on escaping hell. Our focus should be on serving the living God. And if we keep our focus on that, then we'll be doing well and God will be very pleased. Grace is as critical in Tanakh as it is in the Brit Hadassah. Now some of us have heard it explained that the God of the Old Testament is a God of judgment and law, and the God of the New Testament is a God of mercy and grace and forgiveness. It is a crock. That is incorrect. The God that we serve is the same yesterday, today, and forever. People in the times of ancient Israel were redeemed by God in the same way that people are redeemed today. By grace through faith. And I might also point out that being redeemed by grace through faith also means something more than just being redeemed by grace through faith. It is for a purpose. How many times have we heard a pastor get up and he begins reading from Ephesians chapter 2 and he reads, For we have been saved by grace through faith and it's not by our works so that no man may boast. It is the free gift of God. And they stop there. They read Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9, but they forget Ephesians 2 chapter, uh, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. Because verse 10 tells us what the purpose of what God did in verses 8 and 9 is. And the purpose is so that we can serve the living God because of works that He created for us to do even before we were born. So indeed, we are saved by grace through faith. But that's not the end of it. It's for a purpose. And the purpose is so that we can actually perform the good works that God planned for us before we were even born. Read it. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Not just 8 and 9, but 8 through 10. Grace is indeed God's unmerited favor upon human beings who are deeply scarred by the ravages of sin in their lives. We don't deserve God's grace. Nobody deserves God's grace. The law never could save anybody. Our own good works can't save us. We know God 
because He has brought us in and drawn us near because of His love for us, which means His grace, meaning unmerited favor. We don't merit that favor, but He's given it to us anyways. Because of the, He's given it to us anyways based on what? Faith. Faith. We're saved by grace through faith. Now faith is not mere belief. I, I want to make sure that we remember that. Faith is not mere belief. It, it, it's not a head acknowledgement that somebody named Yeshua once walked the earth. It's not even a mental acknowledgement of a theological truth that Yeshua is God incarnate and that He did the work that He actually did on our behalf. It's not even that. Faith is something much more than that. Because faith speaks to what people do in response to the one that they say they have faith in. You get that? Faith speaks of what we do because of the one that we say we have faith in. If we're not willing to do anything, therefore, we don't really have faith. We may believe, but we don't have faith. Another way of putting it is people who are truly followers of Yeshua, they are not people who believe some particular thing about Him. They are people who become His disciples and therefore do everything that they can to become exactly like Him, which means they do the works that He did and they obey His Word. And so He tells us to go into all the world and to make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, immersing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And by the way, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. If one is a true disciple, then he is going to partner with God, even as Yeshua has commanded us to do, and he's going to go forth to a world that is desperately in need of him. Now, this is where grace comes in. Grace is a response to that faith. That faith that will not allow the worshiper to sit still one second. Oh no. Yeshua did something on our behalf, and the response should be, I gotta tell somebody. I cannot sit on this. I cannot be quiet. I gotta tell somebody. If you're not willing to tell somebody, then you're saying you don't really have faith. You gotta be willing to tell somebody. If you're not willing to react, to act based on the thing that, that the one that you say you have faith in did, then you're saying you don't really believe after all. 
The idea of believing is just too darn convenient, isn't it? Because mere belief really doesn't require anything of us. The fact is, though, the true, the true worshiper of Yeshua is going to be very busy in propagating the knowledge of Yeshua to a sin-darkened world. Indeed, we are saved by grace through faith, but it's to do the good works that God planned for us even before we were born. And that, that, my friend, is where the greatest love story in the history of the world begins. Yeah, that's what it is. It's a love story. All the women should be swooning right now. Ah, a chick flick, finally! Why not? Why not? So the title of this message is Grace, Part 4. The subtitle is The Greatest Love Story Ever Told. I'm going to do it by simply going through the pages of Scripture. And one by one, speaking of the Scriptures that show us God's grace and how in His great love for fallen humanity, He has been willing to do whatever was necessary. Turn over every stone. Open every door. In order to reach into the hearts of His human creation. And bring us out of the darkness that we had fallen into by our own sin. And bring us back into proper relationship with God again. By the shedding of His own blood. That's love. That is love. And that is grace. You know, we make a real mistake when we cheapen grace by acting like, well, okay, I went to congregation on Saturday. I guess I can do whatever I want the rest of the week. Boy, it cheapens it. What a nightmare. Grace. Grace means that somebody died for us. And they didn't just die for us. They suffered an awful, painful, horrifying, humiliating death. Yeshua was beaten for hours on end. The flesh of His body stripped from His bones. He had a crown of very long thorns rammed down onto His head, penetrating the flesh of His head. He was hit. He was beaten. He was mocked. He was scourged. He had to carry that cross beam that he was going to hang on. Because of the lack of blood, the loss of blood, he couldn't make it by himself. 
another was taken from the crowd and forced to do so. And then when they got to the site, he was thrown onto the ground, thrown on top of this cross beam. Railroad nails were driven through his wrist and through his ankles. And then he was swung into place on that execution stake. Imagine the thud as that thing goes into the ground, jarring the places where he has been wounded by those nails. And then he hung there. He hung there. And he died there. I've heard it said so many times by people that their faith is a private matter. Well, that's a lie. No, it's not a private matter. At least not the faith of the Bible is not and should not ever be a private matter. Yeshua's death was very public, humiliating, Painful. It wasn't just the physical pain that he suffered, though. Imagine one who has never known sin, who has never committed sin, and he is taking upon himself the sins of all who have ever lived for all time from the beginning of humanity to the end. Imagine one who is taking all of the diseases of the world on himself. All of the mental illnesses. Can you imagine that? Imagine the absolutely nastiest, grossest sin you can think of. And then imagine that is what was placed on him. Don't tell me that your faith is private. Because if it is, what you're really saying is you have no faith. What Yeshua did for us doesn't allow for that convenient dodge that so many Westerners use who believe they've done their weekly duty by showing up in their house of worship and hearing a message about the Lord. It doesn't work that way. This is all hands on deck every day, all the time, 24-7. Why? Well, for one thing, we owe it to Him. After what He did for us. For another thing, 
He told us that as He has loved us, we also must love others. That means getting out of these four walls, and it means being willing to go out there. It means being willing to share your faith. Together. Not just as individuals, but two by two or even three by three sometimes. That's the plan. Indeed, the greatest love story ever told. Let's start from way back. Genesis 3.15. We read, God is speaking to the serpent who has just deceived Eve. Then Adam fell into the sin also. And God says to the serpent, I will put animosity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He will crush your head and you will crush his heel. You know, Satan also uses human agency, doesn't he? Not too unlike God. And he certainly crushed his heel, didn't he? After what I just described, I don't think anyone can argue with the idea that Satan used human agency to do terrible things that day. But it was also within God's plan. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And somebody had to do it. And God put on human flesh and He did it for us. And He crushed the head of the serpent. Do you realize there is no battle between God and the devil? There's not. The battle is between us and the devil. And in Yeshua, we have the authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to command the demons to do whatever we would have them to do, and they must do it. They must. For the righteous man or woman of God who is truly walking in the power of God not only has the responsibility to command what should be in this world, but the authority to do so, given to him by God. Just like Yeshua gave the twelve this authority in Luke chapter 9, and then gave the 70 the same authority in Luke chapter 10. They came back celebrating. They came back celebrating. Why? Because they said, even the demons submit to us in your name. We were having a dialogue last night, myself and a couple of other people, on the subject of Satanism and whether there's anything that the people of God should be doing about said Satanism. And one person gave all kinds of articles that 
uh, really when it came down to it, they all said the same thing. That we should ignore the supernatural because it's not real. Satanic ritual abuse doesn't happen because it can't really be defined and so therefore we can't say what it is and therefore it doesn't really happen. Really? Come on. There is real evil in the world and that evil must be confronted. And I'll tell you, God is in this world also and miracles happen more often than I think many are willing to allow themselves to believe. Indeed, Yeshua crushed the head of the serpent to reestablish, to reestablish God's presence amongst mankind. Genesis 4, 3-5 through So it happened after some time that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to Adonai while Abel he also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. Now Adonai looked favorably <coughs> upon Abel and his offering, but upon Cain and his offering he did not look favorably. Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. The reason I point this out is because I want you to see that even from the beginning God gave a method by which we would find atonement. And that method requires the shedding of blood. The death of the innocent for the guilty. This is a principle that God established as soon as man sinned. Genesis 12, 1-3. There's a way I want you to look at this. I want you to imagine that all the way from Genesis 3.15 until the last word of Revelation 22, there is a scarlet thread woven throughout the words of Scripture that demonstrates the workings of God amongst lost humanity in order to redeem humanity, and not only to redeem humanity, but to redeem all of the creation. Genesis 12, 1-3 is the continuation of that scarlet thread. Let's read what it says. Then Adonai said to Abram, Get going out from your land and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. My heart's desire is to make you into a great nation, to bless you, to make your name great so that you may be a blessing. My desire is to bless those who bless you, but whoever curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. The scarlet thread continues. God looked for a man who would do His will who would walk in relationship with him. He chose Abram. And we find out one of the reasons he chose Abram is because he knew that Abram would teach his children well. 
we think about these holidays that we celebrate. When God gave them to the children of Israel and He spoke to them and He said that you are to do these things throughout all of your generations. It was important to God that He find someone who would teach His children well. Isn't it interesting that even amongst the Jewish people who are outright atheists, every one of them remember their father Abraham nonetheless. It's amazing. God chose well. Abram taught his children well. And part of the teaching to his children was that his children had a responsibility to the world around them. Hence the seventh and final promise made here that through Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. The entire world. You see, that scarlet thread wasn't just for a single people. Our God is not just a God of the desert. He's not just a God of the plains. He's not just a God of the hills. He is the God of all things because He is the Creator of all things. Neither is He just the God of a single people. He is the God of all the world. And He is the God of the nations. This morning in the Torah study, one of the things I said was that really when it comes down to it, I I don't understand why so many think they want to be Jewish or need to be Jewish if they aren't already. The fact of the matter is, God was the first nationalist. He's the one who created the nations. Genesis 22, 6-8. The scarlet thread continues. Then Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and put it on Isaac his son. In his hand he took the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Then Isaac said to Abraham his father, My father. Then he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Look, here's the fire and the wood. Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Where is it? I want you to imagine how this father who had waited so long for the son of the promise might have heard those words. My father, here's the wood and the fire. But where's the lamb for the sacrifice? Because you see, Abraham knew what he'd been called to do right here. And so his son is asking him the obvious question. What a nightmarish question. Terrible question. Abraham simply said, God will provide for himself a lamb for a burnt offering, my son. You see, the irony here is that it wasn't actually a lamb that God provided at this time. It was a ram. However, I am telling you that Abraham was speaking prophetically 
of the Lamb of God who would die for the sins of all so that by God's grace we could be forgiven when we come to faith in Him. Exodus 12, 3-6 Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, Each man is to take a lamb for his family, one lamb for the household. But if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor are to take one according to the number of the people, according to each person eating. You are to make your count for the lamb. Your lamb is to be without blemish a year old male, You must take it from the sheep or from the goats. You must watch over it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to slaughter it at twilight. Imagine, parents, that you bring this cute, cuddly little lamb with the liquid brown eyes that just look so gently into your face, into your home on the tenth day of your month, And this lamb is going to live with you for four days. What are your children going to do? They're going to become really attached to that little animal. And then on the 14th day of the month, you're going to take it out, you're going to take your children with you, and you're going to slaughter their pet. And the children are going to cry. And they're going to weep. And you too will feel their pain. Because you see, the wages of sin is death. Now, the free gift of God is eternal life through Yeshua, but the wages of sin is death, nonetheless. For you to live, somebody's going to die. And it was something that the children of Israel learned at a very early age. They had to. You see, God's love is not something that was convenient for Him. It's not something that was easy. It's not something that was pain-free. In fact, it came at the cost of great pain and great sacrifice and great loss. And this is where, where I, I really wonder where this idea comes in that our faith can be private. If it's real, it can't be private. If it's just a show, just to put on, sure, you can be private all you want. It doesn't mean anything in that case, though. Private faith cheapens grace. 
Faith that never requires that we apologize, that never requires repentance, that never requires seeking forgiveness, is also a faith that cheapens the grace. Grace is costly. In fact, this is the costliest thing that we have. You think silver and gold and diamonds and precious jewels are valuable? Grace is more valuable than all these things. So many times over, it's not even worth trying to compare them. You see, the pearl of great price was so valuable, not because of what it gave us in material value, it was so valuable because it gave us life. Life that we wouldn't have otherwise. So this is the beginning of the greatest love story ever told. And we'll continue it next Shabbat. And then we'll continue it into uh Shemini Yatzeret after that. Until finally we finish this beautiful, beautiful story of God's love for suffering humanity and how in His love for us and what He did for us, how He has also lifted us up and called us to partner with Him to redeem the creation that He gave to us to start with. It is the most amazing story I've ever read. Most exciting story I've ever read. Most moving story I've ever read. It's the story that jerks tears from me more than any other story could or ever has. And yet at the same time, it's the story that makes me so passionately want to celebrate because of what God has done for us. Good night! This is something to celebrate. So I want you to remember this. Whenever you're watching football or some other sport that you really happen to like and you see your team score that goal and you want to get all excited, yay! I want you to ask yourself, if this is true, why you don't ever get so excited about God as that. Would you do that? Please. Please. Because if we're going to get excited about our earthly activities, if we're going to get emotional about them, if we're going to celebrate them, then we should even more be excited about God, be emotional about God, celebrate God. That's the fact it's good for you. It really is. It's good for you. 
The release of emotion on the right circumstances is very good for you. And our Heavenly Father will like it also. And in my mind, that's the most important thing. Amen. Well, I want to close with that. And we will continue from that point. Um, Next Shabbat. Amen. Let's take Kiddush together.